One of the strangest events of the uh, life of Jesus and the life of the Gospels was Jesus' transfiguration. See, most of the time you see him as a very human man, but some of the time we see him doing divine things. But here is the occasion in Matthew 17, 1 to 13, when we see the man himself changed, transformed, uh, metamorphosed, or as we usually translate it, transfigured. What happened? Why did it happen? What's it all about? It's one of the most extraordinary events in the life of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. To understand it, we actually need the rest of the Bible. And so today, in this study, there's lots of Bible reading, Bible flipping. I'll keep giving out the page numbers. We do need to keep flicking back and forth to it. But I'd commend to you keeping the outline in our page here, page 979. Of course, we will uh, keep coming back to that page. Uh, Jesus was not the only one to have his face shine. Moses' face shone when he came in contact with God back in Exodus 34. So let's turn back there to page 88. Page 88. You will need the Bibles. I will give you the page numbers. Exodus 34 and page 88 where we read on that occasion... Verse 29, when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterwards all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. But with Jesus, it wasn't just his face was shining, he was shining, he was transfigured. His clothes became white as light and two famous Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, appeared with him, talking with him. Now the first thing to say about this is that it is not a myth. The New Testament age was one full of mythology, but the New Testament is insistent that it is not recounting myths. The word myth occurs five times in the New Testament, always negatively. Always we are not talking about myths. You see, many years later, Peter, one of the people who was there on that occasion, wrote about it. Turn to page 1213, 1213, 1213, where Peter is writing in his second letter. And in chapter 1 of his second letter, chapter 1, page 1213, chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were there with him on the mountain, oh, sorry, on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice Peter's clear and unambiguous claim it was not mythology. He was an eyewitness of the majesty. This is history. We were there. We saw it. We saw the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him receive honour and glory from God the Father. We heard the voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And even more. Peter says, we have the prophetic word by which to understand what we saw, what it means, what was happening. And that prophetic word is not our interpretation of the events, not just the prophet's interpretation of the events, but God's interpretation of the events. For notice as he says there in verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, you can see something and not understand it. That's very easy to do, to see something and not understand it. Because you don't know the context, you don't know the background, you don't understand what's happening. Uh, I saw an advertisement in Narita Airport in Japan, in Tokyo. It was an advertisement that I have no understanding of. It was a kind of strange flower that kept opening and closing and opening and closing, electronically kind of like that. And then there were two humans who were looking at this flower and every time it opened, their mouths opened and every time it closed, their mouths closed. I have no idea what it's about. It was an advertisement, I'm sure, but I've no idea. I saw it some 15, 20 years ago. I'm still pondering the possibility. When they say a picture is worth a thousand words, it's not. Because I saw the picture and I still have not the foggiest clue what it's about. I've been burdened by it for all these years. You can share my burden. You don't know either what it's about. You see, you need to be able to read the words underneath, but they were in Japanese, so I couldn't read them, so I don't know what it was about. But the words interpreted what it was that you were looking at. And, but you need the right interpretation, don't you? Well, when God speaks by his prophets, he gives you the interpretation of what it is you are seeing. So what was the prophetic word that explains to us the transfiguration? Well, firstly, there was Jesus' prophetic words at the end of chapter 16. Back we go to page 979. For at the end of chapter 16, he talks about the Son of Man picking it up in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Then after six days, Jesus took with him people. It was only six days later that the three of them, some of them, three of them were standing there and were to see Jesus coming in his kingdom, see him in his glory. Just a few months later, they were all to see him, risen from the grave and ascending to his father in glory. But now it was just three of them that saw the Son of Man like this. Now, 
last time I was here, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that the phrase son of man was Jesus' favourite way of talking of himself. And it had three usages. It meant man, he was the son of man, he was man. Secondly, it was a way of talking about oneself if one wanted to in the third person um, uh, impersonal way of talking if you wanted to. And thirdly, it was referring to Daniel 7, to the world ruler who in the judgment day was going to receive all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, to better understand it, let's turn to uh, Daniel 7 now. Daniel 7, which is on page 887. Page 887. 887. Should come to us to Daniel 7. Oh, it's right. Isn't that good news? And let's look there at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come what came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It was in this sense that Jesus was the Son of Man that Jesus was talking about, you will see the Son of Man coming with the angels in his glory and power. It was in this sense that Jesus was talking about himself. But did the disciples understand that? When he was talking about the Son of Man coming in power and glory, did the disciples say he's talking about himself coming in power and glory? Or he's talking about the one that Daniel prophesied would come in power and glory? We don't know what was in their minds yet. But when he was transfigured into his glory, here he was with Moses and Elijah. Now Moses was the one whose face shone in the Old Testament. Moses was the greatest of the prophets. But there was something else about Moses. He was the one who was told of another who would come, just like him. Back we go to page 191 this time, page 191, where we're in the book of, Daniel, uh, of Deuteronomy, page 191 and Deuteronomy 18. Moses, the great leader, the great prophet, in Deuteronomy 19, sorry, 18 and verse 15, 18, 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. <clears throat> I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus was that long-awaited prophet the one like Moses that the people were to listen to. And so now we see Jesus transfigured and Moses is there, but Elijah's there also. 
For Elijah was also the one who was to come again. So turn with me to page 957. 957. I did warn you there's Bible flipping today, but if we're to understand the transfiguration, we've got to understand what the prophetic word was about, about the transfiguration. So 957, it's the last chapter of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, Malachi 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So now we see the two Old Testament prophets who were prophesied to come, one like Moses and Elijah standing beside Jesus. Moses and Elijah on either side and then the voice from heaven comes explaining even more. The Old Testament's given us the background. In the great day, someone like Moses is coming. In the great day, someone like Elijah's coming. Now here he is, come, and Moses and Elijah are there, and the voice from heaven comes, the voice of God, quoting his own scriptures and saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Firstly, he identifies Jesus as his son, the son of God. And he does it by quoting Psalm 2. Okay, back again we go, page 553. Page 553 is Psalm 2. Page 500, what did I say, 533 it is, 533. I say 553, it's 533, Psalm 2. It's the royal psalm. There God and the Moses... Sorry, God and the Messiah are opposed to all the nations. They all rise up against God and the Anointed One, but God laughs off their opposition, for he's appointed the Messiah, the Christ, the King in Jerusalem. And God turns to the King and says in verse 7, Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, here is the clear identification from the voice of God that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. For just as Peter had said in chapter 16 of Matthew, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, so now God says... You are my son. Now Jesus knew this and we know this from back in chapter 3 where Jesus was baptised. For at the time of his baptism, as he came out of the water, the voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But now Peter and John, Moses and our Elijah, are hearing the clear identification from the voice of God, this is my beloved son. But notice on both occasions, God also said, with whom I'm well pleased. And that's an allusion back to Isaiah 42. Okay, page 719. 
719. Isaiah 42. It's the first part of a series of songs in Isaiah about a servant, unnamed servant, the servant of the Lord, the servant who suffers, whose ultimate suffering will be for the sacrifice for the sins of all the world. But this is the first reference to this servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not go faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the servant of God who doesn't come conquering as a king, as a soldier, as a mighty warrior, but comes to be beaten, to be attacked, to be destroyed, to be offered up as a sacrifice for sins, arriving at its culmination in chapter 53 with the great, the great gospel verse of the Old Testament, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the suffering servant. But the very first reference to the suffering servant is this one, behold my servant with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus, as he comes out of the water in baptism, hears the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, Psalm 2, the Messiah, with whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42, the suffering servant. And as the disciples see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in all his kingdom and glory, the voice of God identifies Jesus again, the Messiah. You are my beloved Son, the suffering servant, with whom I am well pleased. But now in Matthew 17, God gives another word as well. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 5, listen to him. This command didn't happen at the baptism when God spoke to him, but this was the command of God to the disciples as they stood beside the transfigured Jesus. In the light and face and the presence of Moses and Elijah, listen to my son. There was no greater prophet than Moses. There was no greater prophet than Elijah. But this is my son. Listen to him. What a rebuke to Peter, who just a few minutes before, six days before, had wanted to tell Jesus not to go the way of the suffering servant, who wanted to tell Jesus now what to do. Let's build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, who wanted to speak when he should have listened. For Peter didn't get the timing right, did he? When Jesus said that they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, I doubt that they thought that six days later they would be standing in the presence of Moses and Elijah with the Son of Man transfigured in glory before them. But when they did see it, Peter wanted to capture the moment. Couldn't pull out his smartphone and photograph it. That wasn't an option for him. 
His capturing of the moment was three tents. Let's build one for each of our heavenly visitors. What was he thinking? To honour the visits with Jesus? To hold the moment permanently in tents? To protect them from the weather on the mountain? What on earth was he thinking? I always like Mark's explanation of Peter's offer. It says, For Peter didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. I always like it because it is just so true of human nature for some of us who have got the gift of the gab, not to mention myself, that when we don't know what to say, we start talking. That's what you do. When there is a kind of vacancy, a silence, you have to fill it with words, especially when you're a bit afraid and know what, what... You just start talking. That's the best thing to do. It explains the stupidity of Peter's suggestion. The transfiguration was not the time for Peter to be talking, it was the time for him to shut up and listen. And soon Peter and the others were overwhelmed by the voice of God. And on the way down the mountain we read in verse 9, Jesus told them, tell no one about this until the Son of Man was raised from the dead. This was not the time for talking. This was not the time to go tell the world like Matthew 28 is the time to go tell the world. This was not the time to speak of the incredible sight that they had just beheld because the gospel message was not to be based on the foretaste of heavenly glory that they had the privilege to see. The gospel of Jesus was to be based on the cross. The glory had to follow the cross. Later would be the time, but this is not the time. So they asked about the time, for they remembered that first Elijah had to come to restore all things. And hadn't they just observed, witnessed the coming of Elijah that Malachi foretold? And if that was Malachi foretold about in Elijah, where is the restoration of all things? the turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers, the turning of the fathers' hearts to the children. Where's the rest of the prophecy? So Jesus told them that Elijah has come, but that he wasn't recognised. Rather, he was treated as the Son of Man will be treated, rejected, despised and killed. See, if you're an Old Testament reader and you read about Elijah coming, you think, oh, the people will listen then. You read about a prophet like Moses coming and you think, well, who wouldn't listen to a Moses? You read about the Messiah coming, the king who's going to rule the world and you say, this will be terrific, we'll beat the Romans. The last thing you expect is that Elijah will be rejected. Moses will not be listened to. Jesus will be killed. That's not the expectation, you see. For the kingdom of the Son of Man was not coming in transfigured power, was not coming, the coming of the kingdom of the Son of God was not coming in transfigured glory. The kingdom of the Son of Man, the Son of God, was coming by the suffering servant of God. And even the disciples got the message this time that Jesus was talking of the recently assassinated John the Baptist. He was the Elijah sent to restore Israel, to call the fathers back and the children back. And he was the one that the people, in the end, saw killed. 
He was the true forerunner of the suffering servant. What were the three disciples? What they were witnessing for a few moments was the coming of the kingdom of the Son of Man, Jesus transfigured in his resurrected glory. In due time, all the disciples would witness the coming of the kingdom of the Son of God and Jesus transfigured into his resurrected glory. And the resurrection body is one that we too one day will see when he returns once more and takes our lowly body to be transfigured into the likeness of his glorious body. But our transfiguration doesn't wait right till then. It commences now. For when we turn to the Lord, the veil over our face and hearts is lifted as we behold his glory. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transfigured, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is true of every Christian, that being born again and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't remain the same, but are slowly and steadily being changed to be more and more like Jesus. And this is something that's not only happening to us, but it's something we're also to be working on as well. For as we're commanded in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transfigured. Same word again, you see. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. For as we grow in our understanding of God and his will, as we strive to do that which is pleasing to him, so slowly we will grow into being different people, transformed, transfigured into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Until that day when the Lord Jesus returns and we will be fully and completely transfigured, transformed, metamorphosed, transfigured, like him on that mountain, transfigured, into the very glorious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and into his likeness. For then we will appear as he is in glory. That moment of transfiguration for us lies ahead. That process of transfiguration we are to work at now, for God is at work in us now to bring about. But that foretaste, only three of the disciples saw on that day, on that mountain, until they all saw it in the upper room on Easter Day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your Son, the Son of Man, should come into this world as the suffering servant, take our sin upon himself, and so be crucified as the sacrifice for our sins. And we thank you that you raised him on the third day, raised him not just back to life, but to the transfigured resurrection life 
of the age to come. He is in all his kingdom and glory and power right now. And we thank you, Father, for the revelation of his transfiguration, of his resurrection, of his glory and power that these three eyewitnesses had. And we thank you for your word, the word that you spoke through the prophets that helps us understand what it is that they saw on that day, that they, we may know, of the kingdom that lies ahead, that comes to us through the suffering of your Son. We praise you, Father, for this knowledge, and we praise you for calling us into this kingdom by his suffering, and we praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.